Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. Hey, I'm here with uh, John and Matt, and we've had such a good time, as we always have. Reading David Bentley Hart's, and I'm going to say it backwards, Tradition and Apocalypse. I got it. I got it right. We felt that there were key elements of the conversation that uh, we really hadn't touched upon, and we wanted to to hit some, some of those points this morning. I was thinking about how to apply this conversation to thinking about Scripture, about how a part of the claim of this book is that if Jesus is the one, or you can say, I guess, the Logos, the Son of God, is the one through whom all things are created and the one in whom all things find their ultimate meaning, then whenever we have this conversation, we're saying something sort of strange in that the unfolding of history is also, in one sense, like the unfolding of data that has to be taken account of in relationship to Christ. So not necessarily that, oh, things are just getting better, our understanding is just increasing, but there's more to deal with, and you have to deal with everything, which I think Hart mentioned some of those ideas very briefly, but doesn't go into that in the book. But that seems to also just be one of the the problems. It's not a problem, I guess. It's the challenge of Christian claims about who God is in history. So you have to account for not just the tradition that you would like. I was actually thinking about this again last night. I had to read John Calvin for class. His thing is just like, well, you know, the Roman church claims to have a visible, unbroken form, and this is how they claim authenticity. And he says, well, I don't think any of that, you know, you shouldn't care about any of that. And then what he's, he wants to claim is like a pure preaching of the, the Word of God, right. which both of those claims are equally problematic for different reasons, and I think both just untenable. But that's the sort of thing you have to deal with, and I think Hart is... Uh, though again, he, as you said last time, he doesn't want to get practical. That's the sort of conversation the book brings up. It's almost an impossible task then, because we even people who are, say, wanting to be more expansive with the idea of tradition, chances are we're leaving out a lot of you know the Easter, the ancient Eastern churches that are non-Chalcedonian or whatever. Who knows about those? There's been so little work done on that. I was even at SMU, for example, taking classes that are trying to be more expansive than just like European Eurocentric views of the church. Uh, Nobody's talking about what's going on in Syria, India, Egypt, even after Chalcedon. I'm assuming that the people that are experiencing as much as anyone else, the fullness of the gospel are the people that are, have disappeared from history. We all know people and groups in our own life. I'm thinking of, in Japan, you know, the little leper colony my father-in-law worked with that has been there for years and years, they are truly outcasts, you know, in Japan, not as much as they were, you know, in the 50s. And literally their families on the registry, they were taken off, pronounced dead. Their children are taken away from them, uh, should they have children. They're not allowed to come into the society. And it's not a shocker that many of these people become Christians. And there's a, a good, you know, large church, larger church 
in the leper colony than you'll probably find in most communities. Who's going to write that history? Yeah. Uh, well, nobody is, because uh, these people are completely cut off. And yet, I, I would just think that duplicates itself again and again in uh, human culture and society. Mm -hmm. That is, if you were to write the story of the church in the United States, who would it be that could write the authentic story? I assume that it would have to be black Christians and those who have been oppressed by a white Christianity. And from the bottom, they're going to tell us it's not going to be the white slaveholders. I'm assuming that it's always going to be the outcasts. It's always going to be those people who would be erased that have experienced the fullness or a fullerness of the gospel uh, than others. You know, Paul, I would just say that's interesting. I was thinking about this for my adult formation class yesterday. I used this book and basically in Sean Copeland's book, we talked about black witness and apocalypse. So basically what you're just outlining. And it struck me in, well, actually one of the readings for yesterday was Joseph. It's when Joseph receives his brothers whenever he says, hey, I am, you know, Joseph, is my father still alive? Don't worry about selling me into slavery. It's all good now. God has, you you know, God has sent me before you, this sort of thing. I was looking into, it's called the Africana Bible. It's like a commentary put together by not only Blacks in the U.S., but African scholars and just a different perspective. The person that's writing on this passage says, you know, isn't that interesting that all of a sudden, Joseph's just okay with slavery. <laughs> it's like, what's actually going on here type of thing. And interlaced with his comments are stories of slaves who had to go through like American chattel slavery. And you can't really imagine one of them saying the same thing, except in the 19th century, they do. There's this group called the Ethiopianists, and they're a group of Christians, both in the U.S. and in Africa. And they basically say, you know, slavery was a bad thing, but uh, isn't it so great we were exposed to Christianity? Now, the commentator is still skeptical, I think rightly so, saying that, you know, these voices have been co-opted and have been forced to fit in a world that doesn't even make sense of their own experience. In other words, you have to sort of gloss over it. So I guess a part of what I am saying is it's one thing to do this in history. I think it's not even a hard thing for some of us. But to think about scripture itself in this way, uh, all of a sudden that sometimes is off limits. What I was thinking about after reading Hart's book is, well, why exactly is that the case if we don't really think that scripture is the final full deposit of the faith, but rather it's Jesus incarnate for us, but always this thing that is opening up in history and even the interpretation of history as a part of the data of well, what is the Christian faith? Are we able to have that sort of conversation? Where are the limits? I mean, that would be another question. Like, are there any? So that's sort of vaguely what I was thinking about after our conversation last week. Yeah, no, I, I think that's right. I think that we may have neglected to say what you just said, and that is that what is necessary is Jesus, <laughs> is Christ, not simply the Christ of history, but the Christ, the living Christ that we encounter. Yeah. And you don't want to separate that out from the Christ of history. You don't want to separate that out as if you can locate that in some confined space. And so I think that's what you're 
you're describing is that the belief that we have is there is a necessary part of the Christian faith, and it's called Jesus Christ. And we believe in the living Christ. We need to put flesh on that. (laughs) That is, that there is a continuing incarnation of Christ, we believe, in the church. But there is also this expansive sense in which I think what I I really liked what you said. Mm -hmm. That is that we're continually in in this day and age encountering areas and understandings people didn't weren't even under consideration for previous generations. I'm thinking, you know, that in psychoanalytic literature, the penetrating power of the gospel for a psychoanalytic understanding, I believe there's no end to that. And yet that is something that is actively, I think, work being worked out. I'm assuming that that holds true for many areas, that mm-hmm. uh, there's an old unfolding realization of how the gospel or what it might mean to encounter Christ in particular areas with particular realms of understanding. Uh, I don't think you've misnamed this when you say, well, essentially it's peace, right? It's about the peaceable kingdom. I was thinking about that also. I was thinking all of these thoughts while I was walking my dog this morning. <laughs> it's very um, fruit, fruit really. <laughs> so It's a good walk. I walk my dog more. <laughs> yes. uh, but I was thinking that, you know, in one sense, peace, we're not saying anything too radical, and yet we realize we always are. Like I was going to say, in the sense that maybe you shouldn't kill people. This isn't a radical leap for most people, and yet those same people will, or, you know, even me, myself, probably, you can put me in a position where all of a sudden I'm arguing for some justification for some sort of violence. We were thinking about this while Russia is trying to invade Ukraine, right? It's like, you would just think, what in the heck? <laughs> like, why are they doing this? And it is absurd. And in one sense, we're seeing something play out where obvious lies are being used to justify this thing. But the fact that they're obvious lies isn't going to stop it from happening. And so I realized to say, well, peace is obviously something good, and most people can make that leap. I also recognize that at the same time, that doesn't really help us out practically. And so I was thinking about it two ways. It's not just a negative thing, like don't kill, but it also has this positive aspect of, well, are we actually creating a community of peace? And so I think some of these strategies, as you were saying, telling the stories that don't get told, telling Actually, that's a phrase from Dietrich Bonhoeffer, right? History from below. And he claims to have figured this out, a lot of people think, before he actually has. (laughs) Put it that way. In other words, he's claiming to understand history from below. It's a letter he writes, I think, for Christmas or for New Year's to his co-conspirators before he's in prison. And that's the way it ends. Most of the critical scholarship, people will say, yeah, he he doesn't actually really get this until he's in prison. But uh, that's a good idea. Uh, history from below. We're responsible for telling the stories this way, and even interpreting scripture maybe responsibly in such a way that enacts that peace in a real community. But then there's other questions, right? Uh, Also about a recent book, Rowan Williams' Christ at the Heart of Creation, or something like that. He starts by talking about Austin Fair, who is uh, one of the greatest Anglican theologians of the 20th century. And he wrote this book, It's a philosophy book, and I guess that's probably why it's not very well known in Christian scholarship, because I think it's nigh impenetrable. But he comes up with this phrase, double agency. And what he's articulating is really a theory or a notion of grace and nature. 
and how God is not in competition with created things. So there, there can't be. God's will for a created thing can never actually be in competition with the created will. And he lays all that out beautifully. Williams is making this point, and then he, he really relates it back to, this is a Chalcedonian theology. This is how you ought to do Christology in light of Chalcedon. At the same time, I guess, I want to say, well, Chalcedon's worth preserving, uh, even though maybe it is a product of the imperial church. Uh, well, I guess it definitely is a product of the imperial church. But maybe we have to step back and say, yeah, but those conclusions aren't necessary to that situation. I mean, that's another part of Hart's book. I guess it's a question of method and authority. Obviously, nobody gets to say what stays and what doesn't. But as we articulate this, how do we even account for why we want to keep some things and why we're open to deconstructing others? Or, for example, reading against scripture. Actually, that was another thought that I had. It's like, well, Origen reads against scripture. Uh, In the book of Joshua, he's like, well, the plain meaning of this, I just wouldn't keep it in the Bible. Uh, And yet he offers up a reading that is obviously not what any plain sense of the word is and yet it's matt loves it matt says it's one of his favorite books now because of origins interpretation why wouldn't we continue that project with our own critical tools then and why wouldn't that be acceptable but then how do we account for also say reading with the chalcedonian definition those are sort of the questions that thinking about around the subject good questions let, let me suggest that you've given us a key already in pointing to origin and i'm saying the key that that origin is using in regard to the old testament is one that we will always use when re- origin reads joshua and saying that this book is not worthy of being included in the canon unless we find jesus there and of course what he's doing he's reading out the violence He sees Christ then as standing in place of that violent story. And that's really Origen's reading. I think that's the the Origen is kind of the model in the early church, that where we find Christ, we find the suspension of oppression and violence. That where we find Christ, if we're thinking in terms of the symbolic order, if we're thinking in terms of the law, if we're thinking of hierarchy, In other words, oppression and violence is a kind of pervasive thing that just saturates all things unless we have the suspending logos of Christ who frees us from that. In other words, I'm assuming that's not just a personal. It is personal. It is psychological. But I'm assuming that it just extends out into everything, every relationship, so that where we find Christ, we're no longer going to see things through that lens of oppression, of suppression, of violence that we normally put upon things, that's going to make the last first and the first last. Yeah, I mean, I think that's good. I don't disagree. Let me bring up like uh, a cognate issue that I think just makes this more problematic. And that's that what we've just said, or what Origen is often accused of, is just being anti-Semitic, of course. Because what you've said, or what we have said, what Origen has said, is that scriptures that we have inherited from uh, Judaism, by the time you get to origin, maybe that's even a more coherent thought. Or obviously, when we're talking about the Apostle Paul, there is no such thing as like uh, modern rabbinic Judaism. It's all coming out of the same place as Christianity. But to say this book is unworthy of God, apart from reading it Christocentrically. Well, there's plenty of Jewish readings throughout history that are peaceable. I mean, actually, 
uh, Jewish interpretation, oddly enough, has been much less sentimental with the scriptures than Christian interpretation has been. And so that you early on and uh, continuing to this day have peaceable readings of books like Joshua and critical engagements with books like Joshua that, of course, wouldn't have any recourse to Christ. I just bring this up because I think it's so easy as Christians to say it is just through a radically Christocentric reading. But of course, that story itself has a long history of violence. I mean, that history of doing interpretation that way has a long history of violence uh, in Europe. I don't know, just to bring up more problems. No, I think this is the problem. In other words, I don't see this as a side issue. I think this is the hermeneutic key. If we get this right, we know how to read the Bible, but I think this is part of reading reality. In other words, we began, we'd be talking about, okay, the way that history would normally be written is some people would be written out. The leper colony in Kanoya in Kagoshima, Japan, it's not going to appear in any history anywhere. These people are obliterated in terms of any significance. I'm putting this in quotes. In terms of any record, uh, they're not going to appear. But if you were to go to the community in Kanoya, Japan, and ask, well, where are the Christians in this community? If you left out the leper colony, I don't think you've encountered the true church in Kanoya. But isn't that going to just be repeated again and again? That if you come to the United States in the 19th century and say, where are the true Christians? Nobody's going to point you to the black church or to slaves or to, to black experience unless they're Christ themselves. But if you leave that out, in other words, you've not encountered Christianity. In fact, what you've encountered is this false, you know, whatever we're going to do. De- how will we deal with that? Is it, I don't know what to call that thing that oppresses and enslaves and kills and is violent. Do we want to call it apostate? I don't know. But clearly where people kill and murder and in the name of Jesus, they've missed out on something. And so I think that is the key, and I think we're going to continually, that is the problem we're always going to be up against. And of course, some things we can see easily. Other things are going to be harder for us to to apply that. Yeah, I, I was struck by a part of the conversation in Hart's book when we were talking about conversion, that almost the, the history of tradition can be understood in the same way that our own conversions can be understood, right? Like that it's a process of sort of coming to a new understanding, a higher understanding, a higher understanding, and that that process is likened to theosis. I was thinking about even for my own case, the people who would be forgotten or, or canceled or whatever you want to call it are drug addicts. For me, the the place where I've experienced Christ most powerfully is in a place, the Christian uh, Substance Abuse Treatment Center, where, you know, nobody knew about it, really, even. Nobody cared about it, except for a few people, you know. But I I discovered Christ there among these people who were pretty much disposed of as no use to society, especially that, you know, sees people more and more so as uh, commodities, you know, the drug addicts don't really have much to offer to the system in terms of that sort of understanding of what a human being is. But, you know, that process of conversion, I think, is uh, we talked about in the other podcast, too, is a, is a process. I think it's a humbling thing. And I think for the church, this is probably particularly difficult, right? So whether it's the Orthodox Church or any sort of magisterium, any kind of authority, it's always going to be, I think, difficult for any, for just even me as a person, right, to go, 
man, I used to read Joshua as an apologetic for Christian violence at one point. It's like, well, I mean, this is what a lot of us do, right? It's like, well, it's right there in the Bible, you know? Joshua goes in and commits genocide and wipes these people out. And if God says it, uh, then it must be good. You know, God commanded them to do it. So it must be good, you know, in some mysterious way uh, because God commanded them to do it, right? Uh, but later on, as I became, you know, began to become converted and understand things differently, I thought, well, yeah, but I take the words of our Lord Jesus Christ seriously when he says things like love your enemies and do good to those who hurt you and things like that. So I guess for me, I went back and thought, well, I only have two choices with, with something like Joshua. Let's take an example. And that is to say that I'm either wrong about the way that I was reading this, right? And that's going to be a painful process of saying, man, I, I think I got this. I had to have gotten this wrong. If Jesus is saying something that directly contradicts, or I need to change my understanding. Those are my two choices, right? Is to either admit that I was wrong and say, we got this one wrong, Matt, you know? Uh, and now it's time to move to something better and higher. And so for me, that's whenever I discovered origin, thank God, you know, that because I was ready to just kind of say, I don't really have too much use for some of this stuff. You know, like I, I if, if, if we believe in Christ and the peaceful, the, you know, peaceable kingdom and stuff like this, it's like, well, what use do I have for a book like Joshua? Right. And then I, I told John, the, you know, the origin came up behind me and smacked me in the back of the head and said, how dare you? You know, this is the word of God. Uh, and that Joshua is, you know, in the Septuagint is just uh, Jesus, you know, so origin goes through and says, my Jesus, you know, and he's talking about Joshua and he talks about how we have to understand Joshua, that it's okay to understand Joshua in a literal understanding. If that's what you're into, if that's what you're, if that's all you can bear sort of thing, maybe you can think of it in a, in a moral way and, and get something different out of it. But that the highest is a, as a Christian understanding, a spiritual reading, Whereas, whereby you can look at something like Joshua and say, well, what is this really about? And so for Origen, who, by the way, he was called the mad allegorist by his enemies. And so that's the problem that I think that we're facing too, right, John? That if we're, if we're going to say, well, it, everything's open, right? We can maybe fall into the same sort of charge, you know, that, that Origen did, that that's all just sort of willy-nilly, but that's not what we want to do either, right? All that to say that whenever Origen talks about understanding these things spiritually, and he says, well, maybe, you know, the enemies, I don't have any enemies. I don't have people that are trying to kill me that I know of. You know, I don't have people, you know, it's like, but Origin says, yeah, but you do have uh, the passions, right, that are seeking to destroy you. You do have your sins, which are constantly attacking you. You do have the demons, which are assaulting you at all times. And so, again, for a spiritual understanding of these things, to read the text in that regard and to say, so instead of literal violence and going out and committing genocide, you need to turn that that anger or whatever you want to call it, which Origen says is a good thing. You know that it's a that or anger can be used. You know to rid, help rid yourself of the passions. You know that you get angry at the um, at the fact that you've sinned against God and that you've you know become what you are and things like this. So again, that process of humility, though, I think even for me on a personal level, though, it's very difficult to say I got this wrong. So I'm wondering how Hart's book's going to be received because people I've, you know, I've read here and there some reviews where of course, you know, the traditionalists are angry about it and stuff like that. But who can say how, how someone who has a venerable tradition of whatever, 1500 years or 1700 years or whatever are going to say, well, we, we got this one wrong in regard to peace or whatever, right, Paul, or, or just whatever the, the case may be. I just think it's a really difficult thing that we're talking about. So even if us three, if we decide, okay, 
we need to change some things about our thinking and about our interpretation and stuff like that. Well, that's a good start. And hopefully that will carry over into our lives where we're treating people better. Cause I think that that's really the main concern, right? Is that we're becoming converted ourselves that will in turn lead to sort of bigger and, and better things within the church, like in John's congregation or something like that. Maybe people will, you know, I like in, uh, in uh, elders Osama and the brothers Karamazov, he talks about mutual responsibility and he says, well, maybe these people would be better if I was better. You know, if I was more Christ-like, maybe they would be, maybe they would be better. They would be just like people were um, drawn to Christ because of his light and his glory and all this stuff uh, that maybe if I did it, if I was a better follower of Christ, they would do the same with me. So in other words, as we're converted, then maybe other people will be converted, you know, and then maybe the whole church in some way can, can change. But you know, to me, it's easy to become a little bit despondent here because it's like, I really don't know. These are huge questions that we're asking. I guess I'm hoping that Christianity hasn't been, you know, lost in some ways. After I read Hart's book and was talking to you guys, I'm like, man, have we have we lost this thing in some, in some ways? <laughs> Maybe that's too much. Maybe that's too much. John's scratching his head. Oh, I was just thinking that's actually, uh, I was actually commend Paul and Hart for sort of the same thing on this. And that for Paul, it's uh, always has been that it's so obviously morally degenerate to justify violence and so perverse that if that's what you think Christianity is, you need to stop. <laughs> I mean, that's, and I, that takes a lot of courage to say, where as Hart says something similar in this book, he says, if it's wrong, it's wrong. Who cares? I'll walk away. I have one uh, quote that, that he says that maybe. This is, it says, only in cases of moral departure from the explicit teachings of Christ can one easily identify what can rightly call heresies. Oh, yeah, yeah. I'm not talking about that, though. I'm talking about the flip side, the beginning of the book, when Hart basically says, I'm going to engage this project, and I'm not going to be sentimental about it. And uh, he does this all over the place. Uh, Hart doesn't mind that if, in fact, he says, and I think that all shall be saved, if Christianity, in fact, teaches infernalism, forget Christianity. I mean, he's so for sure uh, about, you know, what counts as being moral imbecility or moral degeneracy that he's fine with saying, no, there's a better picture. And if we can figure that out apart from Christianity, then Christianity's flawed. Now, it seems like he doesn't actually think that's happened. <laughs> he is, as far as I know, remained a practicing Christian, right? But I hear what you're saying uh, in the sense that well, have we just lost the the faith? Or in some way, I think it's really have we lost the church, is maybe what you're asking, the historic visible forms of the church. But a question that I would have, I guess, about the solutions, and I think we have to be careful when we say, what is this for? Uh, is it for conversion? Certainly. But is it for conversion of myself? Or is it for conversion of a community? Because it's so easy for Christians to slip into sort of pious, um, sentimental, personal, subjective talk. In other words, all it's about is about me becoming who God wants me to be, uh, when I think it's actually pretty clear, both in the tradition and in Scripture, is, in, in the tradition as flawed as this is represented to us, that it's about a community being formed. It's about a community being converted. And of course, an individual, this you can't do that without individual conversion, but it's never just individual conversion. So I guess I would, I would say that in response but it brings up this question, what's the real point of this? Is it worship, like to give worship to God? I think that's at least an answer that some people would give. Is it to actually be an agent of change in the world? Is like the body of Christ 
uh, the community in the world that's supposed to call people to repentance and so that they change. I mean, it can be all of these are not mutually exclusive, but it is true. I think, especially in our own time that different communities place uh, more emphasis on one side of that or the other so that you have, uh, for example, and I think you could use Roman Catholicism as a pretty good example of this. The point is worship and preserving the apparatus of worship and teaching uh, the magisterium. So, should the church be an agent of change in the world? Sure, but the Roman Catholic Church, in any sense, isn't going to change anything that would affect those forms. Well, actually, maybe that's not a very good example because I was just thinking of they have changed the forms of worship more radically than anybody else. Uh, but the point is, it's still very central and it's still hierarchical, meaning that. For a Roman Catholic, they would, I mean, the Pope has said this actually recently, even Pope Francis, basically keeping the tradition of an all-male clergy is more important than doing justice for women uh, by ordaining women or even seeking out strategies that might include women in leadership to combat, say, the sexual abuse scandal. So that's one, ver that's one way of placing the emphasis on the institution and I think it's not just because they want to save the institution. I really do think it's because they think the main thing is worship of God, and this institution is the vehicle for that. Whereas, Paul, if you don't, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I see somebody like Paul being sort of on the other end and saying, well, all that stuff's ancillary. Uh, what we really need to do is make sure we're preaching uh, peace in such a way that can change people's lives and form a community that doesn't do violence to one another. So, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Paul, but it seems like you're willing to give up most of the forms of this, that, or the other uh, if, because you've identified the central thing as building a community around Jesus, the peaceable kingdom, etc. Uh, so I think that's a pretty big question for just contemporary Christianity and also how we're going to interpret how tradition plays a role in that life. I guess I would turn, yes, I, I think you've express my own view that and paul in corinthians describes he goes through various situations in which people might find themselves that if you're married well act as if not if you're single act as if not if you're a slave act as no, if not now he does add a, a note with that he says nonetheless if you're able to free yourself or get out of slavery mm -hmm. yeah make sure and do that it's not that he's erasing these things or saying that they're completely obliterated, but he's saying these things should no longer bind you. These things should no longer hold you. And I think that what he's describing is the structures and forms and hierarchies and, you know, that these things then, this is a reality that we're always going to be, we're never going to get rid of ethnicity, Jew, Greek. We're never going to get, you know, we don't want to get rid of male, female, uh, slave-free. Maybe, in some sense, we'll never get rid of that, though we, we would want to. But Paul's point is, those things are not binding. I, I think that's the idea, is that there is a suspension of the oppressive force of this symbolic order that is put upon us. This symbolic order, I presume, is just part of the world. We're never you know, going to escape those things entirely. But those things, whatever they might be, whether it be class, ethnicity, think of the lepers, disease, those things are, are not to be an oppressive, binding, enslaving force upon us. That I think that's part of what the freedom in Christ means. I think that St. Paul also is, th say, think of these things spiritually. You know, that if you're 
if you're single, live as though you're not, meaning because you're married to Christ spiritually. I think that that's a, that's, that is the way Paul understands these things. But I think it would be easy to go the other way and think, oh, you know, just think of all this stuff spiritually instead of actually working for the freedom of slaves, you know? So there's always mm-hmm. that tension too. It's hard because there's certainly forms that I myself wouldn't want to give up. Mm-hmm. And I mean, actually, there's accounts as I've said morning prayer this morning. I recite the Apostles' Creed. Like, I believe in this, you know. I'm an Episcopal priest. I do the Eucharist on Sunday. It's like I've got a set form. I think that something's happening, but uh, Jesus is really present under the forms of the sacraments. Like, I, I believe all of this. But what I, I haven't, I guess, done in response to Hart's book is how do you account for what you believe and what you don't, what, you, what gets kept and what doesn't, in other words? Because I'm pretty willing with him to say that a lot of this is not of necessity stemming from the revelation we have in scripture or in Christ's life or even the faith that's been passed down through the apostles. And that is just to say that some of the forms are probably just accidental, the forms of Christianity that we've received. And yet, uh, are they just venerable because they've been around for a few thousand years? I mean, that's not really a very good reason in the end. So I, I think it is an interesting thing to work through existentially as well uh even the you could ask about like the symbols the race the the signs of the sacrament the matter that you're actually dealing with like are those things just open to change it was just an accident that we use bread and wine could we use something else like these sorts of questions i mean all this is in the backdrop also of of course the roman catholics are having this huge debate over the fact that a priest decided he could say whatever he wanted when he baptized people and yet, at the at the flip side, where I, I don't think individual priests should just flout uh, the ecclesiastical authority that they have subjected themselves to, it's like it's obvious that those aren't the only words that are in Scripture, that even the Eastern Orthodox use uh, a different baptismal formula. I mean, it seems very petty at once at the same time, uh, and I think to invalidate people's baptisms is just cruel. It seems like there is a clinging to the letter of the law. Yeah and missing this the the spirit and i'm afraid absolutely I think, I think that's our the continual danger i just happen to believe enough in paul's depiction of that hermeneutic key that i think you can just apply it again and again that in some way the letter is going to take precedent the form is going to take precedent the representation is going the sign is going to mm-hmm. to be privileged and at some point, that is an oppressive, pharisaical, murderous force. In other words, that's what makes Paul, the Pharisee, a killer. That's what, you know, he, he recognizes the weight of the law. And I, I think that we can reduplicate that in what this discussion. We, we are in a crisis of leadership. I don't, I don't think anybody's excluded. Is it, is it more important that a priest deliver the sacraments or that he not abuse small children? We're in a sexual crisis in which the letter of the law has so perverted the institutions of the church that it's a scandal. I mean, a literal scandal. The, the church is not a scandal now for the reasons that Paul would want it to be a scandal or Jesus. It's a scandal because it's just immoral. It is just doing things that people in their darkest thoughts would, would not imagine. That's what's been done to families. That's what's been done to children. 
And I don't know that anybody's free of that. So we're in a crisis situation in which things have gone wrong. And I think, again, in the spirit of David Bentley Hart, we just need to say, hey, that ain't right. And yeah, any, sentimental. yeah, any of us can, any of us can say that ain't right. You know, we don't want to be equivocal about this. And I'm afraid that that's the, the danger is that we will equivocate and we will, you know, well, you know, it's just a few thousand priests or something. No, uh, we're in a crisis and that crisis is connected not simply to form and structure, but to belief. I think the theology has given rise then to the crisis, and part of it is this. It's this topic, tradition. Uh, the tradition has come to bear a weight that it should not bear, and it needs to be apocalyptically undone, exposed, and suspended. What is central to this, to this thing that we all want it to be? He says, only in cases of moral departure from the explicit teachings of Christ can one easily identify what one can rightly call heresies. A professed Christian, for instance, so detached from the teachings of Jesus that he or she is willing to argue in favor of capital punishment or to claim that Christians may blamelessly acquire and keep vast personal wealth or to embrace libertarian social theory or to support a certain recently unseated Republican president of the United States or to champion right-wing Catholic integralism and so forth is one who has effectively left the gospel behind and who may justly be regarded as having abandoned the true tradition altogether. Beyond such obvious examples as these, however, judgment is best withheld. All too often in Christian history, the word heretic has just been another word for someone who, honestly seeking first the kingdom of God and its righteousness, has had the misfortune of doing so in a way ultimately pronounced effective either by his or her contemporaries or, more contemptibly, by later generations. And, of course, his favorite case there is origin. Origin, yes. To me, I like what he's saying. He's saying that, boy, we might, if we're followers of our Lord Jesus Christ, then what must be first and foremost, like about what it is that we do? I always use the example of, uh, you know, if you're a Kung Fu, if you're a student of Kung Fu and you have a sensei, it's like, well, you got to do the things that the sensei tells you to do. That's what makes you a, a learner. It's what makes you his student is that you follow him to the death, that you follow him to the to the letter. Maybe Paul can talk more about this, uh, you know, samurai and stuff like that. And maybe there's a code there that we can critique or whatever too. But nonetheless, the point is, is that these people are disciples of their master. As Christians, you would think that at the very least, if we're going to say, well, Christ is our master. He teaches love for enemies. You know, he teaches no one who doesn't renounce all of his possessions can be my disciple. It's like, boy, that's a tough one. But we at least have to be committed to those types of things that, you know, Jesus says, whoever would hurt a little one of the, you know, one of these little ones, it would be better to have a millstone. So it's like, well, whatever it is that we do to justify that type of stuff, it's clearly, clearly going against the master's teaching. That That's step one. And again, I don't mean to be too individualistic or, or sentimental or anything like that, but getting, getting the teachings of Christ in my own life, getting those things right is... Is, is step one. I just, I just think it is, but, and I, I get tired of sending Paul every, you know, for a while there, I was like sending him all the different articles, whatever Christian, you know, megachurch pastors would fall into some sort of sexual, you know, sin and stuff like that, because we, we can meet up on the, the Roman Catholics and, you know, and the priests and we can, uh, and deservedly so. It's like, we can do the same to uh, everybody, but I think we need to aim this thing at ourselves as we talked about in the last podcast to say, well, where am I? 
Where am I failing to live up? Because that's where I'm, I'm being heretical. I, I can't change what the tradition's teaching about, you know, the two natures of Christ and things like that. Preaching on that story from the Old Testament yesterday, Joseph and his brothers, I mean, that was what I left with myself after studying the passage, is we're very quick to identify ourselves with Joseph. Or even Christ's teachings, love your enemy. We're very quick to identify ourselves with Christ. Oh, yeah, we can just go do. We're ready to love our enemies. This is the takeaway, right? But actually, we're probably first the enemies of God who are being loved. And more likely than not, we are Joseph's brothers willing to sacrifice each other to, for what? A little more favor in the world? Uh, something like that. So I do hear what you're saying, Matt. Those stories are told to reveal to us, I think, the genealogy of human jealousy. I think that, that what is being described to us, this is a very Girardian thing, but I think it even goes beyond Girard. What is unfolded there is the, the very thing that I think the Christ is addressing in his disciples. We often do to Judas what you're saying we would do with Joseph and his brothers. Yeah. We read ourselves, no, none of us you know, oh, I would never betray the master. But wait a minute, look, you know, the apostles, they all go around and they say, is it me? Am I the one? They were all suspicious that they were capable of this thing. And in fact, what we see in the, the story in the washing of the feet of the disciples where the betrayer, that what he's washing them of is the, the tendency of Judas. It's the Judas in all of them. You're not wholly clean. Because the Judas tendency is there. What is that Judas tendency? Well, we see it in Peter, I think. And that is that Peter, too, is going to betray the master. But he's going to do it in such a way that I think that most people would uh, kind of go with that betrayal. He's going to get out a sword, and he's going to whack heads off. I mean, I think he's just a poor swordsman. He really wasn't aiming at ears. He was aiming at heads. And he was willing to go down fighting, but they could not comprehend what Christ is asking of them. That incomprehension should take us for a little bit, because what we're talking about is something I think that you're describing, Matt. We would tend to project it and say, oh, I see that in the others. But of course, it's incomprehensible because we can't turn this thing back and realize that our own impetus is that of Judas, that of Peter, that of all of the apostles. They're all in a, in a situation in which the Judas tendency, the betrayal tendency, you know, the word here, the, the, the paradidomy, that they're going to hand him over. They all hand him over. Or they would all, the powers, in other words, are such that they just seem impenetrable. How do you get a handle on the powers? It's not by pulling out your sword and whacking their head off, but it's the manner of Christ, that Christ has a handle on the powers, but he's handling the powers from the bottom up. You know, this is the, the he submits himself to these powers and undoes them, this power of death. And so I think that's key, that, that the way this thing gets a grip on us is then through this survival instinct, through this grabbing the power, through this doing the, the practical thing, the, the good sense thing. In this, uh, you know, Hart, I think, is partly right, but I think there is also a sense that Christianity has changed up 
our very instinct or, or sensibility about what is moral and what is not moral. And especially in this regard, that is that I think our tendency is to see the act of Peter as the true moral act. And the act of Jesus, if it were any other situation, we'd say, well, that's just stupid. And yet that is the means of undermining the powers. And so to subordinate yourself, and it is a revolutionary subordination, it's going to undo the powers from the bottom up. So what we're describing is true in case of the principalities and powers, whatever form they might take, whether it be state power or church power, that it's not going to be through outpowering them, but it's going to be through this kind of bottom-up revolution that we're describing. I think that, yes, it's good to go back and, and see the human genealogy of envy and jealousy and things like this, but also someone like Origen would want us to find Christ in that story of, you know, Joseph. In other words, you know, he was sold for 20 pieces, I think it was, you know, so it's like, well, that he was sold. When, as soon as Joseph, or John told the story earlier, I was like, oh, that's that's wonderful because Christ was sold by his brothers. And, you know, and he basically comes back and says, peace be, you know, peace be with you. And, you know, he he forgives them. He restores them. The angel says, go tell the, the apostles and Peter, you know, and, and so because, you know, Peter had, had, had done the very thing that, uh, you know, he had betrayed him, uh, which is interesting because that was the reading this morning, you know, and the, the, the disciples were saying to themselves, is it me? You know, they, he was saying, you know, there's a betrayer among us. And the disciples at least had the wherewithal to ask themselves. And, the, and these are the guys who hung out with Christ, right? And so that would be like, I would think, hopefully, like one of us saying, is it going to be me that hands Christ over? Like, and I think someone like Origen would say that every time we fall into sin, that we hand our Lord Jesus Christ over, you know, that we, that we, we sell ourselves into slavery uh, to the, to the devil, you know, that we, so in other words, that type of spiritual reading is something that to me is, is, is much more revolutionary. And you use the word revolution. And that's why I think that I'm attracted to, that's what I'm attracted to personally about Christianity is it's revolutionary sort of aspect, whether in my own life, just completely revolutionized my whole being, you know, my whole telos and my whole destiny and everything. Like I'm a, I won't get into it, but I'm a very different, <laughs> I'm a very, I'm, my life has taken a very different trajectory, you know, than it, than it once was on. And that's because of the recapitulating, you know, revolutionary uh, restoration of Christ, you know, that, that he's begun. But I look to my favorite people though, throughout the history of the tradition are these kind of uh, people who were you know, I think Origen is saying, no, we need to revolutionize our, our our understanding of the scriptures. We need to read this thing. It's such a bold, like, you know, John said something earlier about him being anti-Semitic and stuff like that, and, and we can talk about that. But Well, I said that's what critical scholarship accuses Origen of being. Yeah, I'm yeah. not trying to pass judgment myself. Right, right, right. right. <laughs> no, no, no. And that, and that, that I, can, I can easily say that because he, you know, this is kind of common with those fathers that they, they're pretty harsh, you know, but they're saying that, the, you know, the Jewish interpretation, again, I'm just passing on what they're saying, is sort of defective, you know, that it's, uh, it's inadequate. It, it may in fact be a sort of violent, you know, kind of letter of the law that, that ends up leading to the crucifixion of the Son of God. And so, Origin is is saying basically to this Jewish ears and stuff, you know, come and get me. Because what I'm saying to you is that there's this revolutionary way of reading your script, you know, the scriptures, the the Torah, and that it's a Christ-centered sort of reading that's going to flip, that's going to really change the meaning of these texts in many ways. And in, in a lot of ways, these texts are unintelligible apart from Christ. Like you can have your interpretation. He calls them Jewish fables. He calls them Jewish myths. He goes pretty hard, you know. 
I'm attracted to that sort of revolutionary hermeneutic, but I'm also very much attracted to like this whole revolution that if you, if you, if you're like me, so I grew up in a rough neighborhood and things like this. And so I immediately recognized that, oh, well, of course, loving your enemies would be a part of like this teaching of Jesus, because it's such a, it's so contrary to the world. It's so contrary to the world that I've been living in. And then I come from and everything else that Christ teaches is so utterly contrary. You know, don't, even if you look at a woman with lust, you've committed adultery, you know, g- give away, you know, all these like sort of revolution, they're completely against where we used to live and move and have our being outside of Christ. So of course, when it comes to violence and peace, there will be a revolutionary teaching. Of course, there would be a revolutionary sort of teaching when it comes to economics, right? Or, or critical race theory. Paul has been saying this for years, that we should be leading the charge on these types of things when it comes to critical race theory, when it comes to, you know, uh, justice for women. Uh, we can go all the way through, you know, because that is the revolutionary kind of nature, I think, of Christianity. So back to John's original question, you know, about you know, what, what we should be doing in light of uh, what Hart is saying about tradition, you know, and the openness of, of the scriptures and the revolutionary character of what, of Christianity has been the thing that's been kind of lost in many, in many ways. And to me, that was the thing that was the coolest thing about Christianity was that it was so different, that it was so apocalyptic in, in terms of its, of its worldview of like total surrender to Christ by faith you know it's like wow that's already a revolutionary kind of call to change your whole life based upon faith in the risen son of god you you know what i mean like for someone who's living in the world and who's you know maybe they're enjoying their life making a bunch of money or you know sort of living the life of a rock star or whatever to follow the call of christ and say okay i'm going to leave all that behind or that's pretty powerful you know that's pretty amazing that anybody would be willing to do that you know so that's what i like about you guys because you're saying well i'm not just satisfied with the status quo sort of thing you guys are always trying to push me you know, and push our listeners to something higher. And that's what I think that Hart's getting at with his book on tradition is that we can always try to return to this thing that in many ways has been like a ghastly failure, right? Like a ghastly failure. Um, The quote in the book from the Roman Catholic guy, uh, you know, they were promised the kingdom and wound up with the church. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org.